Just wanted to remind you of a resource that we're making available during the Easter season, and it's a devotional called Jesus Encounters, and you can get a free copy of that if you'd like by downloading it at easterdevotional.com, or if you are unable to do that, there's some copies available uh, all throughout the church, and you can pick up a free printed copy of that. It's an eight-day devotional that we've written and put together for you, and hopefully those of you who have gotten it have been a, a good resource for you during this time of year, but if you haven't done so already, I hope you'll take an opportunity to pick up a copy of Jesus Encounters. We've been looking at Jesus the last few weeks, uh, the idea that Jesus is more than just an icon, Jesus is more than just an image, that, that Jesus actually wants a relationship to us. He's a person who comes to us and wants a personal relationship with us. And we found that he can do that in a lot of different ways. We talked about how Jesus was our friend and, and how Jesus is our, uh, or, I'm sorry, our teacher. And today we're looking at how Jesus is our Savior. And if you want to uh, hear any of those that we've uh, had before that, that uh, maybe you missed, uh, you can go to our website and listen to any sermon uh, in the past, or you can do so through our app on your phone or your tablet. Today we look at Jesus as our Savior, and a Savior is a person who saves, rescues, delivers from danger, harm, or destruction. John Piper has an illustration. He talks about two men who are in a car, and the rider in the car knows for a fact that there's a time bomb in the trunk that could go off any minute and could destroy them. The driver doesn't believe that there's a time bomb in the trunk. In fact, he thinks the rider is insane for thinking so. Now, the state police have determined that there is indeed a bomb in the trunk of this car. And so they set out on this search and rescue mission to try to save the people in the car. Now, the rider looks in his rearview mirror, the side mirror, and he sees in the distance these flashing lights. And as they get closer and closer and closer, he is more and more and more confident that his Savior is on the way, that someone is, is coming who's going to save them from destruction. But the driver, who doesn't believe it, looks in the rearview mirror and sees the flashing lights. And the closer they come, the more and more he views them as a threat. The idea of a savior assumes a couple of things. And, and the first thing it assumes is that someone needs to be saved or rescued or delivered because if no one needs saved, rescued, or delivered, then obviously you, you don't need a savior. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul addresses his words to people who came to the conclusion that they needed a Savior and responded accordingly. And he affirms their decision, but he also uses their story to talk about salvation for the rest of us. And according to Paul, at issue is settling things between a holy God and a sinful people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul says they needed saving because they were dead. Oh, they were very much alive physically. They were walking around. They were breathing. But they were spiritually dead. 
Their relationship with the holy God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, indeed the giver of life, their relationship with that God was dead. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, think about this. A physically dead body does not have the ability to understand or to appreciate anything. And a spiritually dead person doesn't have the ability to understand or appreciate spiritual things. Just like a physically dead body doesn't have an appetite for food, so a spiritually dead person has no appetite for the things of God. It's entirely possible to be alive physically, but spiritually dead. In fact, one commentator wrote that our world is a vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live. Well, what keeps them wandering in that graveyard? Well, Paul says, first of all, transgressions. A transgression is a disregard or a violation of the law, in this case, God's law, and sins, which literally means missing the mark, those things where we fail to meet the goal that God intends in any area of our lives. Those are the things that have a death grip on us, on our spirits. And without someone who can save us, from that grip, then we are spiritually dead and we will remain in that dead space. Why? Well, very simply because life does not come from non-life. Life does not come from non-life. A physically dead corpse possesses nothing in itself to will itself back to life. A dead body has nothing in it that can bring it back to life. And in the same way, if you are spiritually dead, your dead spirit cannot bring itself back to life. Life does not come from non-life. You need a Savior. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He continues in verses 2 and 3, but he says that you were dead in these trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What are some of the things that spiritually dead people are engaged in? Well, for one thing, they follow cultural norms instead of God's norms. They, have a, they follow the opinions of others and of their friends instead of God. They also kind of are after popular opinion. Whatever the world happens to think at the time, whatever's the popular belief, all of those things they follow after instead of what God's word says. And then he says that their lives are sabotaged by Satan. Satan is active, he's an evil power in the world, and his influence can be seen actively at work in those who disobey God. And it brings about a constant state of rebellion or opposition to God. And in verse 3, he says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, nobody is exempt. Every single person either has or is living that way. No one is exempt. They were only interested in themselves, what felt good, what made them happy, what seemed right. 
And a lot of people live that same way today. But Paul, in verse 3, he nails the reason why we, why we need a Savior. I mean, nails it right on the head. He has said we were spiritually dead in transgressions and sin. We were separated from a holy God. We followed the ways of the world. Our lives were sabotaged by Satan. And we lived for our own pleasure. Why? At the end of verse 3, he says, We were by nature deserving of wrath. We were by nature in other words, the things that we have done to bring the wrath of God upon us, we do by our very nature. Because we're in need of a Savior not simply because we have sinned, but because we have sinned by nature. Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. John Piper puts it this way, rebellion runs in the human family. It's a part of our sinful nature. So here's the truth about ourselves. Here's the truth, that we are dead in sin, that there is nothing good inside of us, that we are rebels just because of our very nature that we followed our own desires, that there is no hope because of our very nature. And we deserved the very wrath of God. That is the truth about ourselves. So the question is, is it hopeless? The answer is yes. Unless the second part about the Savior is true. The first part is, that someone needs saving or rescued. And I think Paul has made a pretty good argument of why we need saved or rescued from destruction. But for it not to be hopeless, the second part has to also be true. And that is that someone is willing and able to save us. A savior has to meet both of those requirements. He has to be willing and he has to be able. He must be able to save. It is possible for a person to be willing to save, but just unable to save. We see disasters all the time on TV where, where it's impossible for people to get to the people who need rescued. There are people who are more than willing to save them. They're just not able. They can't do it. And then we have people, on the other hand, who are able to save and rescue, but simply walk on by. They're able, but they're not willing. For someone to save us from being spiritually dead and out of fellowship with God and separated from Him, for someone to save us from that, they have to be willing, but they also have to be able. Back in verse 1, Paul said that we were dead in trespass or transgressions and sin. And in verse 4, he says, but. I love that. You read all of this stuff that we were dead in trespasses and sin. 
And it was hopeless. But, he says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. When we were dead in transgressions and sins, God made us alive in Christ. He is certainly willing. Scripture says it's by his grace that we are saved. It's by his grace. It's not by our actions. His grace is something that he freely gives to us that we cannot earn on our own. Grace itself is the unmerited favor of God that's bestowed upon us as sinners. And God's grace is extended to us freely. It's because, he says, of his great love for us. In other words, he didn't have to do this. He did not have to do this. But it says here, but he was willing. Because of his great love for us, he extended to us grace. He was willing. God is willing today to still save. He's willing. Scripture says, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Back in verse 2 that we read, Paul writes that our lives were being sabotaged by Satan and we were influenced by his power. So, so not only do we have to have someone who is willing to save us, we have to have someone who is able to break this power. But Jesus is able. And he broke the power through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. So that now, in verse 6 we read, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I love the way this is worded. It, it, it's not just something for the future. It doesn't say God will raise us up. It says God raised us up. And this is important because our salvation is not about just what happens when we die. It's about now. It's about what happens now. When we become a child of God, we become a part of God's family now. And the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature now. The old is gone and the new has come. We don't have to wait until someday in the future to be saved. We can know a new life and a new power and a new heart and a new desire now. When we receive Christ, his transforming power comes into us now. Not only is he willing, he is able to do it now. Back in verse 3. It said that we, by our nature, were deserving of wrath. But instead of wrath, he has seated us with Christ. And verse 7 says, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Instead of his wrath, 
What we find now are the incomparable riches of his grace and his eternal kindness. Think of the difference. Our destination has changed from hell to heaven. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are set free from sin's power. We exchange despair for hope. We exchange eternal death for eternal life. And we are no longer an enemy of God, but we become a child of God. From God's wrath to being seated with Christ, to enjoy the riches of his grace, and to experience his eternal kindness. What a difference. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why would God do it this way? Because we are kind of geared to, we get what we earn. You know, if we work hard enough, we get what we earn. I was part of a funeral a, a long while back, and someone was getting up who meant well and speaking about the person who, who had died, and, and, and they said that, that, that he was a good man who had certainly earned his way into heaven. It says here, it's not by works, it's by God's grace. And the reason he did it that way, so we can't brag. It doesn't matter how bad or how good you were according to the world's eyes before you came to Christ. We are all saved by the same grace. And when we are brought into the family of God, we are brought in at the same place. We're not up here or down here because of how good or bad we were before we came to Christ. It's all his doing. It's none of our doing. We accept the gift that he offers us through his grace. We don't earn it. And so when we come into the family of God, we come in and we're all in the same place. <laughs> and the scripture says that same place is we're his masterpiece. We're his handiwork. We were created in him to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not only does he bring us in and call us his masterpiece. Not only have we been saved by his grace. But he has work for us to do that he's prepared. Bruce Gertz said, The gospel is not meant for good people because there aren't any. It is meant for sinful people who are willing to cling to the one who alone can save them. So do we need a savior? I think Paul has pointed out very clearly that certainly we do. But it is only through God's grace that salvation is possible. And he's certainly willing, and he's certainly able. And it's only possible through what his son did on the cross. And, and some will deny, though, their need for a savior. And, and some will even say, well, there, there are more ways than one. Some will say there, there are more ways than one. You know, you can, come to, you can come to God in a whole bunch of different ways. There are a whole bunch of different faiths out there. There are a whole bunch of different avenues. They all lead to God. Well, let me ask you this. If you can get to God a multiple, by multiple means, multiple roads and different faiths, why would God become a man? 
Why would he come to this earth? Why would he die on the cross for the sins of the world? To go through that horrible, excruciatingly death you can't describe. Why would he go through that? Why would he do it if there were a whole bunch of different ways to get there otherwise? Why didn't God just say, look, there are a hundred other ways. You pick one. They're all easier than me coming down here and dying for your sins. If there were other ways, why on earth would God have chosen to die for us? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And the reason and the answer is because there is no other way. There is no other way to salvation than faith in Christ. Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by me. I think if we honestly examine our own condition, that we are dead and that life cannot come from non-life, then I'm going to put my faith Not just in a Savior who died for me, but I'm going to put my faith in a living Savior who rose again and conquered the grave. Something that no other faith can claim. Let's pray.